Welcome to One Interview, One World. This is Lainey Kay, and this is a show about interviewing people from all walks of life because everyone has a story to share and we can all learn from each other. I hope you enjoy listening. We tell people to be as open as you can. And I, and I would talk about, look, there's all these different factors in adoption. And there's the cost of the adoption, there's whether you are going to be gender specific or not, there is, and and all of these things that adoptive families can decide for themselves, how much they're willing to be open to as far as the race of the child, as far as drug exposure for a child, potential health issues. And I tell people, look, try and figure out for you what's the most important thing and what's the most important thing for your family that you just can't give on. Today, I'm with Jennifer Rose Asher, who is the author of a new book called Journey to My Daughter. This book is about Jennifer's experience in adopting her daughter. Jennifer has a master's degree in counseling psychology and worked in the field of adoption as a birth mother, counselor, and an adoption consultant for several years. Jennifer is the proud mom of a daughter and two sons. Her first two children joined her family through adoption. She lives in Texas with her husband, three children, four dogs, and two quarter horses. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me today and to share about your experience and knowledge in the adoption arena. And I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. So why don't you give us a little more detail about yourself? Well, I did work in the adoption industry after I adopted my children. My book kind of talks a little bit about how I came to adoption. I had a couple of miscarriages and then we adopted my daughter. Subsequently, we adopted my son about two and a half years later. And they were such a blessing to me and such a wonderful part of my life. I had a degree in counseling and I really didn't want to continue um, the traditional therapy route, because I felt like it, it just, the, the schedules wouldn't work with, with parenting my young kids. I had three young kids at that time. So I got involved in doing um, some birth mother counseling part-time and then helping other families through adoption consulting. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. When you decided to write the book, what was the motivation behind that? Well, originally, when I wrote this book, the first draft, the original first draft, I wrote it in 2007. And I really just wrote it for my daughter. Someone had asked me a question about my adoption. And this story behind her adoption was so crazy. I went through so much and so many just bizarre things happened along the way. The people were always asking me about it and wanting to know more about what happened. And somebody asked me a question, I couldn't remember the answer. And I it occurred to me at that time, I said, you know, Someday, I want Hillary to know how our paths crossed and how we happened to find her. So the only way that I was going to be able to, to tell her kind of what happened was to write it down at that time so I wouldn't forget anymore. So that was the original first draft. And then when I was working with clients frequently, if not always, in the adoption process, there comes a point where families are just like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what's going on. Nothing's happening. It seems like we're stalled out. Is this is this ever going to happen? And it's just a very kind of devastating place to be, especially if you as an adoptive mom have a lot of friends who are pregnant. They have like a really specific timeline. They know it's going to take nine months. They have a date when their baby is most likely going to come within a couple of weeks of that date. And with adoption, you never know. You could get a call tomorrow. You might not hear anything for two years. So it's very frustrating. So I would often tell families my story and how clearly this child was meant to be our child. Mm -hmm. And we had to go through everything that we went through and all of these crazy adventures to kind of stall us and wait for our child to be born. And I would always tell them this story. And every single time my clients would say to me, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. And you can't even believe, and you need to write this down and and write a book. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I did, but you need to share this with all the adoptive families in the world. So I tried and I read like the first chapter, which took me like five hours because I was sobbing. Mm -hmm. And I just said, nope, too emotional, not doing this right now. 
So I stuck it back on my computer and I didn't open it for years. Uh, last year with the pandemic, um, I, I had, again, it was the universe talking to me and, and all at once I had all these signs that I needed to be writing and I needed to be doing something productive and creative and something to feed my soul. And at that time, it, this all happened within one week. One of my friends who was also an adoption client posted on Facebook, he had written a book. And I said, this is my sign from the universe. I need to pull that book off the computer and I need to share it with the world. So I opened it. I read it. I didn't sob hysterically. I said, this is an incredible story. It's time. Mm-hmm. So that's how, that's how I happen to be doing this now. Yeah. Yeah. Like they say, divine timing. Yes. And, and it, there was something that you said, you know, it took, it took a while. I don't know. How long did it take bef- when you started the process to when you got your daughter? How long was that? Well, it wasn't very long in time, but a lot happened in the, during that time. Um, we, I, I made a decision to, my husband and I agreed to have a child in early 2000. Um, I had a couple of, I had two miscarriages that happened from between like April and November. And then in November, when I had my second miscarriage, I said, okay, we're going to adopt. And that's when I started the process. And my daughter was born the end of May, 2001. So not too too long. No, it was not too long as far as time. It really wasn't. It was about six months, almost Mm -hmm. exactly it, but a lot happened during that time. Yeah. 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 And, and also like, I kind of feel like if a child wants to be with you, you know, there's like that timing as well, you know, from heaven. (laughs) Yes. Well, and that's, that's what I think. Uh, I never really saw myself as a particularly spiritual person or anything like that, but in looking at my adoption story and in editing this book, I've really found so many times, even when it wasn't a part of the story or anything like an editor will point something out to me and I'll be like, look at that. It was clearly another sign from the universe. It was clearly this. I should have known at that time that I should have stopped what I was doing mm-hmm. and turned in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just put trust out there to God or the universe that this is going to all work out. Yeah. So I, I say in my book and, and the, the language that I kind of try to term it as that our path, my husband and my path crossed with my daughter's path. And and that was, that needed to happen when it needed to happen. Now she was only a day old when that happened, but there was no way for that to happen any sooner. I was so insistent that this was going to happen immediately and it was not going to take too long. And I just wanted to be a mother and I was ready. I kind of lost sight of everything else, but Mm -hmm. I needed to let it happen when the time was right. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go over just a little bit about the journey then? Well, we decided to adopt internationally. Uh, My husband and I both had an idea that we did not want to adopt domestically. We didn't want to be matched to a pregnant birth mom and have her change her mind. We were both pretty emotional people and we felt like we would get so attached and it would just be devastating for us. So we decided we wanted to do international adoption. And initially we decided, I did a bunch of research and I said, I want to adopt from China. I kind of wanted a girl and I knew there were a lot of girls there. And I knew that there were not a lot of health issues coming out of the uh, children who came from China. There were just, there were a lot of benefits to this program, but I was hell bent on this was going to happen quickly. Well, I don't know exactly what the wait time is now, but at that time in 2000, it took about two, two and a half years to adopt a child from China. And this was absolutely unacceptable to me. And I was convinced there must be a loophole. There must be a back door. There must be a shortcut. I'm going to find the agency that has the connections to get me through this quicker. And I called every agency I could find and looking for this loophole. And they all told me the same thing. It takes two to two and a half years to adopt from China. I finally talked to this woman who said to me, have you considered Vietnam? And I said, Vietnam, no, we want to adopt from China. And she said, well, why do you want to adopt from China? And I told her, and she said, well, you know, Vietnam has all those same benefits, but unlike China, that is, it is 
a centralized government and all adoptions go through the central government of China. Every single agency, no matter where they're coming from, what province they're going to end up adopting from, they all go through the same process through the same government. And it's different in Vietnam. In Vietnam, every process, every province has their own laws. And the process for adoption from each different process is completely different. Some provinces you need to go twice, the first time to submit your paperwork and then the second time to get the child. Some provinces you can mail in your paperwork and then you only have to go once. Some have a longer process and a shorter process. Some have a giving and receiving ceremony. There are all these different factors and it all depended on which province you went through. And she said, and there are some provinces where you can be done in like six to 12 weeks. And I said, Vietnam. (laughs) Let's get them. <laughs> and you know, there was a, that a, initial American reaction that was, ooh, Vietnam, because we all associate it with the war, uh, which very interestingly, they really don't there. That was one of my questions when she first said right. this. Well, you know, do they have really bad negative feelings about Americans? And she said, no, not at all. She said, in fact, and this was the truth. When I went there, she, she had told me this they really see it as a very positive thing. And if you say you're an American there adopting a child, they want to touch the baby's head because they say that baby is so lucky to be going to America. So it's a totally different attitude than we have here towards them. But uh, so we decided to go to Vietnam and uh, we went through all these, jumped through all the hoops that you need to for adoption, filling out paperwork, collecting different documents. And I got a call way sooner than I expected from our agency saying, would you be able to go twice? And I said, no, there's no way we can go twice. My husband cannot take off of work. Why? You know, the whole reason we picked you, we picked Vietnam, we picked you as an agency was because of the kind of the rules and the travel requirements. She said, well, that orphanage that we had, um, that we had thought we were going to, you were going to adopt through, we are no longer working with them. And we don't have any other orphanages in that province. And all the other orphanages we have available are in provinces where you need to go twice. She said, but it's not a problem. Both parents only need to go for the second trip. Only one parent needs to go for the first trip. And I said, what? And and I must've really, really wanted a baby because Mm -hmm. I would not go anywhere by myself. And I said, well, I guess I'll go by myself. And I signed up to go by myself to Vietnam. Wow. So this was a huge leap of faith for me. And I went to Vietnam. And from the moment I got off that plane, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, And people ask me for examples of that. And I said, well, it started with, they told me, once you get there, the facilitator will pick you up at the airport. Mm -hmm. And I said, great. So I didn't ask the facilitator's name or phone number or anything else. I was just told the facilitator will meet you at the, at the airport, got off the airport and there off the, off the airplane, there was no facilitator there. And here I am. I don't speak the language. I don't have any idea. Fortunately, I had the name of the hotel and I was able to find a shuttle for the name of the hotel. And I was meeting two single women who were also adopting. They were supposed to be waiting for me at the hotel where the facilitator was going to bring me. And I got to the hotel and they weren't there. Oh man. And I asked at the front desk, I said, what, do you know, I was supposed to be traveling with two other women. And they said, Oh, yes, they went shopping. They said they'll be back for lunch. They'll meet you here for lunch. I said, okay. So, you know, from the beginning, everything went wrong. And then I said, okay, I'm going to be okay. Take a deep breath. I went and they had a computer you could use to get email, which was very high tech at the time. (laughs) And I went and I got an email from my husband and it said, the agency's trying to call you. And they said that you were going to have babies to pick from. Now, before they went, they told us all about the baby we were going for. Her name was Viet. I had a little picture that I've been carrying around and showing to everyone. I was very attached to Viet. And he said there there was something wrong uh, with Viet and that I was supposed to choose from the other babies. And I was like, what? Yeah. Here I am. I've just gotten to Vietnam. I've been in this country for less than an hour. There's no facilitator. There's no travel companions. The baby I came for is sick. 
And I have no way to reach anyone. I have no idea what time anyone's coming back or where I'm supposed to meet them. And that's kind of the way the whole trip went, except it kind of went downhill from there. So it was just this crazy, crazy thing that everything, it was, it was almost like a comedy, everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I, and, um, that was, that's the biggest part of the story was just my, that was a stressful experience. I'm sure. It was very stressful. It was Mm -hmm. very stressful. Even in retrospect, it's Mm -hmm. crazy to even look at what happened, but, but it didn't work out. And then after I went through this absolutely horrific week in Vietnam, I get back and I get a call from the agency saying the INS is investigating too strongly into these, into these adoptions. They are convinced that there's a a baby buying scheme. So we're terminating all of our adoptions in Vietnam. I said, so you just sent me around the world on this trip by myself for no reason. And they said, pretty much. Yeah. So we had to start all over. So that's just kind of in, in a nutshell, you know, that there's a lot more to it. I, I yeah. did work for five different countries and, and then oh, just man. out of the blue, you know, where we found my daughter was just a complete surprise. Uh-huh. But that's great. It sounds like a wonderful reason to read the book and learn more. Yes. And so with your son that you adopted after what, so the process was, was it similar to your daughter or completely different as well? Well, the situation with my daughter was really unique. It was, it was just the most crazy story ever. And I've never heard of really anybody besides me and the people that I was traveling with going through anything like what we Mm. went through. Mm -hmm. However, every adoption, I think has its harrowing moments. Mm -hmm. And although Jamie's adoption wasn't nearly so kind of noteworthy as Hillary's. When people asked me about it, there were mishaps there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first went, I, we were going to adopt, um, I was called about a child, uh, a Native American baby in Arizona, and we went out there and there was a whole mishap there. And we ended up giving that baby back. Uh, there, there's a different, again, it goes back to the laws. Native American Indians have their own set of laws, which I don't think a lot of people in the United States know, but they have their own laws that are a little bit different from the American laws. Mm -hmm. So for Native Americans, um, the tribe has legal rights to any child who is born of Native American descent. So whereas normally in the United States, if you want to adopt a child, the, the birth mother and birth father need to sign off. If it's a Native American Indian child, the tribe also needs to sign away their rights in order for the child to be adopted. So in this case, we went out there and we had been led to believe that the tribe had already signed off. Mm -hmm. But when we got there, we learned that they hadn't and they wouldn't sign off on the child. And the agency was trying to convince us that it was no big deal and we should just move forward with the adoption anyway. And we had the we had that little boy for, I think, three days. And I, you know, talked to everyone I, I could get information from, talked to a lawyer back at home. And, and I just said, I can't live the next 18 years worried that this tribe is going to come knocking on my door and trying to make claims on my son. Mm-hmm. So we made the heartbreaking decision to give him back. And we went and we took him back to the foster family that had been taking care of him. We called the agency and we said, we're not willing to do this. We feel like this was, we were misled and we, we can't move forward. So yeah, that's stressful. Another, another stressful thing to go through. It was another stressful thing to, but, but that was nothing compared to Vietnam. <laughs> to Hillary. Wow. And then, yeah. and then I take it, you just got pregnant naturally afterwards, huh? I did. I had had, I had had two miscarriages before Hillary was born. And then after, when, when she was begging for a sibling, uh, I went to a fertility doctor and they were testing my blood every three days. And I learned that every single month I was getting pregnant and, but I would miscarry kind of sooner and sooner and sooner where my pregnancies just got to where they were three or four days. And then I would miscarry long before I would ever even know that I was pregnant if they weren't testing my blood. And I just said, clearly my body doesn't want to do this. And I didn't give it another thought. We mm-hmm. decided to adopt a second child, which we did. And I no longer worried about it. I figured I can't get pregnant, not worried okay. about it. 
And then lo and behold, you know, 16 months later, I learned that I was pregnant. <laughs> and at that, yeah. at that time, I didn't see it as a blessing. At that time, I was not very happy with the universe. And I said, come on, I got a boy and a girl. I got two kids. They're babies. I'm overwhelmed. Now you're going to give me another one. <laughs> but he is since since his birth, he's been a blessing. Right. Right. I'd love for you when you were doing like the adoption counseling to share some information to the audience, you know, maybe what they should expect or what the process generally is, or, you know, some of the knowledge that you have on that. Well, a lot of what I did was kind of handholding. I did a lot of more counseling through the process and just helping families to communicate with adoption agencies and to later communicate with potential birth moms. Uh, that was mostly what I did. I helped some with the logistics too. I was there as just kind of a hand holder. Mm-hmm. I can tell you one of the things that um, I, I think I really added a lot of value for a lot of my families that, you know, hopefully can help other families moving forward was that I would tell people to be as open as you can. And I, and I would talk about, look, there's all these different factors in adoption. And there's the cost of the adoption, there's whether you are going to be gender specific or not, there is, and, and all of these things that adoptive families can decide for themselves, how, how much they're willing to be open to as far as the race of the child, as far as drug exposure for a child, health, potential health issues. And I tell people, look, try and figure out for you what's the most important thing. And what, what's the most important thing for your family that you just can't give on? Now, for me, I was not a normal adoptive family. What the most important thing was, was that we were done quickly. I didn't really care so much about the race of the child. The, the cost at that point was like, unless it was going to be outrageous, was kind of secondary. We were willing to accept definitely some health issues. We were really open about most things. I just wanted to be done. So Mm -hmm. for me, that was the limiting factor. Mm -hmm. So I would tell families, be honest with yourself. If you don't feel comfortable for whatever reason, whether it's your own comfort level or the area where you're living, you don't think it would work well. And it it is a little bit of a different time now than it was 20 years ago when I did this, Mm -hmm. or even 15 years ago when I was working as a counselor. Uh, But be honest with yourself. If you don't feel like you could love a child of another race, don't be open to that, but be realistic with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading somewhere in an article at the, at the time about being open with yourself. And it's a really distasteful conversation to have with yourself, but ask who, how Brown is too Brown. And you never really even know that until a baby's born or even until a baby grows up because it's, it's hard to know. You can take a child that's half African-American and half Caucasian and they can look like me or they can look black as coal and you're not even going to know that until they grow up. So you just have, I've, I would tell families, be honest with yourself mm-hmm. about what you're okay with. You don't want to adopt a child that you feel uncomfortable with. But in the areas where it's not as big a factor for you, for some people, finances are a huge issue. They have, and I don't even know the numbers anymore because it's been a long time since I've worked in the field. But at the time, if they had $20,000 that they could spend on an adoption, and that $20,000 includes loans and borrowing money from their parents and whatever, and that's really the most that they can scrape together, that's their limiting factor. Now, there's some families that say, yeah, we really don't want to spend more than twenty-five or $30,000. But really when push comes to shove, it is what it is. It's not really a limiting factor. Don't even put that because there's just the more things you can be open on, the more different factors you can leave open-ended because every situation that's brought to you as a family, the family has the opportunity to accept or reject or So the more that you're going to be willing to look at 
potentially leave yourself open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I would tell families a lot, you know, be really honest about yourself, about with yourself, about what your real limiting factors are Mm -hmm. and everything else. Try to be as open as you can. And then you can evaluate each individual situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great, great information. And then when someone does want to adopt, what are the avenues for adopting? Is it private adoption or adoption agencies? Or what do you know? Like what what's out there for yeah, I know a little bit. The first of all, there, there's three basic, well, now there's really four basic um, avenues for adoption. There's international adoption, there's domestic adoption, private domestic adoption, there's adoption through the foster care system, and then there's surrogacy, which is happening more and more and more. In fact, when I first reached out to the agency that we used for Hillary to tell them about the book, she told me that they really don't even do that many adoptions anymore, that they really do a lot more surrogacy now because there's not as many birth moms who are placing their children for adoption and people want, are, you know, really craving that timeline, knowing what's going on. So that surrogacy is a lot more popular than it was 20 years ago when we adopted. But those are the four basic avenues. As far as agencies versus lawyers, I don't know all the details of that anymore. When we did it, you could hire a a lawyer or you could hire an agency. It was a lot easier if you hired an agency. There were lots of different kind of levels of service within each agency that they did. And every agency has their own specific way of doing things. Mm. Now, explain surrogacy because I think there's a wide range in there too. There is. I, I, for the most part, in general, surrogacy means hiring someone, paying someone to carry a child for you. Now, whether that child is biologically the biological child of the adoptive parents or half the biological child of the adoptive parents or not at all the biological child of the adoptive parents, I think that's just a nuance of each situation. But in general, surrogacy means hiring, basically hiring a surrogate birth mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the birth mother, I take it, is signing a contract. But what happens if they change their mind? I I guess if it's it's not at all their their biology then. So maybe they can't even change their mind. It's, I don't know the details of it. In, I don't think it happens very often. I think they can change their mind. I think legally, once the child is grown inside of them, even if it's not biologically theirs, I think they do have certain rights to that child. Now, in the contract, they've agreed not to make a claim on that child. But I, I think that a- anyone can claim anything in this country. Anybody can sue for anything in this country. And I, I would imagine that there's a financial clause in there. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I have never worked with a family that has done surrogacy. I, I can only guess. Okay. And then I also wonder about the different ages. Like I feel probably most people are hoping for a baby, but what about different age children? Like if you're you're open to say a toddler, you're open to, you know, a young school age child. Do you have any information on that? In general, Private domestic adoptions are usually of infants. Mm-hmm. We, my children, Hillary, we found out about her the night after she was born. We got her when she was a day old. Uh, my do- my son, Jamie, I watched him be the born. I was there in the hospital. I watched him be born. We had him as soon as he was released from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Actually, we had Hillary as soon as she was released from the hospital as well. And that's that's the way almost all domestic private adoptions are. Now that is not true with international adoptions and that is dependent upon the country, mostly just because of the time it takes for an adoption to process and the paperwork and everything. When I went to Vietnam, the baby that I saw when I was in Vietnam was a baby. She was like three weeks old. I believe she was adopted at like four or five months old. And that's pretty young for international. Sometimes I think from Guatemala, a lot of times they can be like 
a year to two years, 18 months, something like that. There's a range. In general, they tend to be young. They tend to be toddler-ish age, anywhere. I think when we were looking, they generally said most likely in an international adoption, the child will be somewhere between six months at the early, at the youngest to about two years. Okay. Yeah. And then foster care care is a whole nother can of worms. That's pretty much any age. You can, you can even adopt from foster care. I think like just before a child turns 18, or if you foster first, you, I've heard that you can foster like a teenager and then adopt them even after they've turned 18. So if you're adopting through foster care, it can be anything from the day after the child is born until they're an adult. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's it's a wide range, so much information. Yeah. And I feel that's probably kind of intimidating too for someone just starting to get into it. But I, I would assume with the internet, there's probably a lot of information out there now for people. There is. And I, I, I don't know if this is right to say, but I feel like families who adopt from foster care are a little bit of a different breed. I don't want to say it that way, but it just seems like it's a very kind of different process, a different attitude. A lot of times families, I know of families who've taken in tons of, of foster kids and some they end up adopting and some they don't, and some are reunited with their families and some just stay with them as foster children until they age out. There's all different things, but I feel like it's a little bit of a different mindset going in with foster kids because a lot of times you, you just don't know if those children are even going to be cleared for adoption. So yeah. there's a bigger risk in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. So you can't really go other than through foster care. You can't really go to a place and adopt a child that's already cleared, like different ages. There, that doesn't really exist. It's only through foster care. There's not a. There's almost no domestic, private adoptions of older children. I can't say never mm-hmm. because I think. Every so often it happens, Mm -hmm. but usually it would be unlikely. It's very, very unlikely for Mm -hmm. a birth mother to give birth to a child, raise it for a while, and then go and voluntarily place that child for adoption. It's, yeah, it's very, very unusual. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what is the price range internationally? Do you know that what that is? I don't know currently. I know when we did it. In general, it was anywhere from, it was pretty much the same as domestic. I think it was anywhere from twenty to $35,000. This was in 2000. I mm-hmm. really don't know anything about what it costs today. Yeah. All right. And then as um, a family unit, what would you like to share about like that? And also like for people um, to understand maybe what it's like to bring an adopted child in. Well, for me. It, it wasn't, it wasn't very much different between my adopted children and my biological child. It, it's interesting. I listened to your podcast episode, your earlier podcast episode with the, with the gentleman who was adopted and, and he had a, a story very similar to my family. Mm-hmm. He, he, my, my kids have always known they were adopted from the time they were babies. In fact, I wrote them books to tell them about, I wrote, I wrote each child and I actually can show you, I keep them in my desk because people ask about them so often that this is, this was my son. This was Jamie's book. I'm holding up Jamie's book that I wrote for them when they were about six months old. And I used to read them their adoption story. And I I made, you know, with Hillary's book, it was a lot harder because the technology wasn't there and I had to do it a lot more manually, but I made about five copies of it. And the nice thing was And she's told me this as an adult. She said she used to read it to herself all through growing up. And the nice thing about it is that it it was a concrete written down version that never changed of their adoption story that they could always look to. And it's all, of course, in very positive language. And, you know, I I feel like right now there's so much discussion about adoption as like a hot button topic and so many adopted children are, are coming forward and, and talking about the trauma of their adoption mm-hmm. and 
that there are many who didn't know they were adopted or never got to know anything about their adoption story or their adoptive parents kind of demeaned or didn't speak well of their adopt of their biological family. And I've just done a lot of reading about that. And, and I really, I, I had no idea that writing this book would lead me in this direction, but it seems to have guided me a lot towards helping families to tell their children their story. And I've joined a lot of groups on Facebook and such with for adoptive families. And there's a lot of discussion. I'm, I'm shocked at how much discussion there is about, oh, we adopted this child and he's six years old. When's the right time to tell him about his adoption? Which I, I can't even, I, I can't even understand that. And I'm so surprised because it's not the way we were we ever were with our kids. Mm-hmm. We told them about it very, very young so that it was, it never had to be a discussion. And, and I can't imagine doing it any other way. And I feel like it was so much the, the correct and healthy way to, to raise children. Now, obviously, again, when you're dealing with like foster kids who come to a family at a later age, I feel like even then it's great to give them this adoption story because again, it's all in very positive language. And I think that a lot of times, not all times, again, my children, I've talked to them extensively. They don't see trauma, the, their adoption as a trauma. I know it is a trauma. I know I've done all the reading about that, you know, tearing a child away from their biological parents is a trauma. But I think in the same way that you can have a bus be in an accident and you can have 50 kids on a bus who all experienced this accident, some of them are going to walk away saying, oh my God, that was so cool. And some of them are going to walk away going, oh my gosh, I almost died. And everyone is going to take that trauma in a different way and react to it in a different way. Now you can help children by telling them that yes, what you went through was traumatic and it was a hard thing. And how are you going to learn from that? And how are you going to make sure that you're not in that situation again in the future and try and help them through that and validate their feelings? Absolutely. And that's important. But I do think that to not tell a child that they were adopted and then have to tell them at a later age would be re-traumatizing them completely. So the more that that story can be told to them and in positive terms, it, I think is, I think is really helpful. There was someone that I spoke to that I read a post about on Facebook and she wrote that she had two children that she was adopting. I don't remember if they were adopted or she was in the process of adopting them from foster care. And one was uh, very, the younger one was very brutally beaten and was going to have problems moving forward, physical problems moving forward. And she said, how can I explain this to the older child? Mm. And, and I, I told her, I said, look, answer any questions that that child has in an age, in age appropriate language at an age appropriate level. And don't answer questions that the child doesn't ask. Mm-hmm. Eventually the child will learn the story, try to frame it as your biological parents did the best they could. They couldn't handle raising children at that time. And they were kind and wise and loving enough to place you in a family where you would be safe and that they knew the, the, the parents would have the, the resources, whether they're mental or financial or anything else, to, to raise you in the way that they wanted to see you raised. And it's important to frame it in that way, that this is a loving thing that a biological parent does to place a child for adoption. It's not that they didn't want the child. Almost never is it that a a birth mom doesn't want their child. It's that they don't want the life for their child that they can give their child at that time. They Mm -hmm. want a better life for them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's so sweet. But when when you leave that up to a child's imagination, a lot of times I think it can lead them to creating this story. If you don't give a child an adoption story, they're going to create one in their own mind. And almost always it's going to be very negative. It's going to be, I did something wrong or my biological mom didn't want me. And 
you don't want a child walking through life with those feelings that somebody didn't want them. Yeah. You know, I think the books that you wrote for your children might really be books that you could publish as well, or even include in your book. Well, I, I read one of them uh, through, during my campaign, I did a pre-sale campaign for my book and I went on Facebook and I did a video reading Hillary's baby book aloud. So there is a video you, if you search on my Facebook page, Oh, nice. Find the video of me reading Hillary's Aww, book. One of, the, one of the things that this has kind of led me to, again, that I never could have predicted is I, I'm hoping to do, and I don't have it set up yet, but I plan to, after the book is published, try and set up workshops with families to help them write their own story. Because although the books I wrote for my kids are great, they're they're their story. And I think what's more important is for each child to know their own story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful idea. There's probably a million workshops that you can create to help people with the expanse of knowledge that you have and the experience. Your daughter, Hillary, wanted a, another baby. So she's begging for another baby. And then you, you get pregnant with a third. How was that incorporated? And how did they feel about that? Did that ever feel weird to them that you now had a biological baby versus them being adopted? Well, they were very young. Right. So when Reese was born, Hillary was about five and Jamie was, had just turned two. Their birthdays are five days apart. So Jamie had just turned two. So I don't know how, I guess Hillary was four and a half. So I don't know how much they really understood of it at that time. Now I can tell you that as a teenager, Hillary definitely has thrown it in my face multiple times. She'll say, (laughs) she'll say, you didn't make me, you can't make me now. And, (laughs) and we did have some quieter discussions Mm -hmm. through the years of, well, I wish I wish I grew in your tummy like Reese did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I said to her, you know, I wish you did too, but it doesn't really matter. I said, I didn't get to know Reese when he was in my tummy. I didn't get to know him until after he was out of my tummy. So I've known you for longer than I've known him, even if you count the time he was in my tummy because he's younger. But I, I tried to express to her that, yeah, that time. And I, I'm glad that I knew that time of being pregnant and what that was like, but it didn't affect how I felt about my kids. And I, and I could tell her, honestly, I don't love Reese any more than I love you and Jamie at all. And neither does my husband. And we don't think of them any differently. In fact, quite frequently, we forget that they were adopted and Reese wasn't. It's just not something that comes into our consciousness very often at all. And we, we really never thought much about it. In fact, we, you know, the, the bottom line is as much as, you know, it's not that a a birth parent doesn't want a child. So they place them for adoption. It's quite the opposite. They really care very, very much about what that child needs and what they want for that child. Same kind of thing. We needed to really, really want Hillary and Jamie to go through what we went through to get them. not so much (laughs) it's kind of happened to us yeah yeah that's sweet you know the closed adoption versus an open adoption so were your children like an open adoption or did you keep in touch with the birth parents well I'll tell you they technically were open adoptions now Hillary's adoption and and we talk about this a lot on on the Facebook and and whatever you know, kind of what's best. I think it's much healthier to have some aspects of an open adoption. I think how open that adoption is, is really, really very dependent upon each individual situation. Obviously, there are some situations where the biological parents having direct contact with the children is not going to be a healthy thing. Now, for my kids with Hillary's adoption, the agency at that time really did not encourage open adoptions at all. So I kind of covertly gave the birth parents an email address. I created an email, which was Hillary's name, and I gave them 
her that email address. And I said, please contact me if you want. I'm happy to tell you how she's doing whenever you want. Now, I didn't hear from them for years. I think I heard from them about when she was about three. And I did not hear from them those first three years. Now, it was it was a difficult situation. Clearly, they were not in a position to be raising a child at that time. So it is technically an open adoption. We do hear from them every so often. They often send cards for Hillary's birthday. We're Facebook friends. So we're able to kind of keep up with each other that way. Hillary has a full biological sister who was raised by her biological mother, who is exactly a year older than her. And I believe they're friends on Instagram and they talk on Instagram every so often. So the relationship is there. It's she knows about it. And I think that's really, really healthy. They're not a part of our lives. They don't come to her birthday parties. They don't show up for Thanksgiving dinner. They don't live in the same part of the country. They're not an everyday part of our lives at all. But it's nice that should we want to get in touch with them, we can. Yeah. And that I would think that's a nice uh, like closure for your daughter that she knows she has information. So she isn't wondering. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Jamie's is very similar. Okay. We, we I'm Facebook friends with his biological mother and his biological grandmother. And I believe his biological aunt as well. And I keep up on them. I get to see pictures of their other kids and how they're doing. And they get to see, you know, pictures of, of Jamie and Hillary whenever they want. Mm-hmm. They can just go on my Facebook and, and see yeah. them with, you know, technology in, in that, in that specific instance, technology is amazing. And it's great because they don't have to bug me. They don't have to be intrusive. They can just go and look on my Facebook and see pictures exactly. of them whenever they want. Exactly. Did you want to touch on anything else that you feel is important for people to know about adoption or about your, your family or important things? Oh, goodness. I, I can't think of anything. I, again, I've, I've found myself through these discussions so frequently leading to just the importance of open communication, particularly with adopted, adopted children and adoptive families and just not having these subjects be taboo and being okay as adaptive parents with talking about these things. And it's hard. I, I know, you know, obviously from personal experience, there's definitely those feelings of being threatened by the biological parents. And, and is my child going to want be resentful or want to be with the biological family? And, and it's just, I feel like it's so important and so necessary and so healthy for everyone. If you can kind of acknowledge those feelings and move past them and what a gift to be able to give your children, you know, limited in whatever way is safe access to their biological families as, and as much information about their biological families as they can, as you can. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some people don't know anything about the biological families and they have nothing to give them. But the more information you can give your children, again, in a positive way, I think is just so important to them going through life. I can't imagine going through life always wondering what my biological parents were like. Right. Now, I have gotten mad at my parents many times and wished that I was adopted and <laughs> wished that I had some some other set of parents out yeah. there that I could go to. Yeah. You know, so I guess there's that nice little silver lining there. But I can't imagine if I knew that I had different biological parents and didn't know anything about them and trying to put myself mentally in that position. I, you know, I can understand why not necessarily children, young children now, because I think open adoption is so much more common now, but more people my age, or even between my age and Hillary's age, that grew up knowing nothing, that were adopted and then grew up knowing nothing. So it seemed like that was definitely like the culture. That was like a stigma or that was just what happened. But now because it's more open and understood, I still feel like it's still like a topic that isn't discussed. And I, and I was going to ask you, so when you're open with your children, but 
how do you deal with, say, the school? Or how do you deal with close friends? Or is it something that you don't even bring up and talk about unless it becomes a question, a direct question? Well, Hillary is Asian. So okay. it's pretty obvious. All right. <laughs> now, it, it isn't always obvious with Jamie mm-hmm. because he's Caucasian. But actually, I, I have a very cute story. When, when the kids were little, we always did this gymnastics class. And they started when they were about 18 months old. So Hillary did this gymnastics class. And when Jamie was old enough, I started taking Jamie to the gymnastics class. And we happened to have the same teacher. And she looked at me the first day and he, he's not anymore, but at the time he had really light blonde hair. And she looked at me and she said, okay, Jen, is your husband Asian or blonde? <laughs> and, That's so cute. and I said, neither. He looks just like me. He's dark oh and Jewish, just like me. <laughs> but it was so funny. So So because of that, I don't know if that makes it easier for us as a family or harder, but it's very, to most people, it's pretty obvious unless they just meet me and Hillary. And then sometimes they'll assume that I have an Asian husband, but you know, anybody who asks, she actually gets kind of a kick out of it. She, she definitely had moments that she didn't like being the only Asian one in the family, but she she had like a viral TikTok and she wears a Jewish star frequently. And in this TikTok, she's wearing this Jewish star and all these people commented, they're like, wait a minute, I don't understand. You're Asian, but you're Jewish. And so she did another TikTok explaining that she was adopted. So she she kind of gets a little bit of a kick out of it. And, and again, I don't know if it makes it in ways easier that it's mm-hmm that it's so obvious. So it's not really a question. People mm-hmm. don't always know with Jamie. I remember, I remember when they were little, sometimes people would say, Oh, you know, Reese looks so much more like you and, and Jamie looks more like Mark. And, and well, yeah, <laughs> that's a hard one, isn't it? You're like, do I go into the whole reason or do I go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I would just say Jamie was adopted and I guess it was just never a big deal in our family. That's good. I, yeah. I don't know why, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book and, and then I'm also working on an, an article series to promote the book. One of the things is that a lot of people aren't sure if they want to adopt and aren't sure if they can love a child that's not biologically theirs that was never a discussion for us. And I'm not really sure why it just wasn't. We just said, okay, clearly my body doesn't want to do this mother thing. We'll just adopt one. Yeah. And there was never that stigma to it. We never saw it that way. Mm-hmm. So nice. All right. I like to ask people, what do you feel humanity needs to work on to make our world a better place? Oh goodness. Well, I don't want to be political at all, but I I think right now humanity needs to work on getting vaccinated. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't say that, but I I feel like I I feel like we're being so limited by our own actions in this this case and and to kind of get past this disease, I think is a a huge thing. Uh, Beyond that, I I think just kindness and openness of communication. I, I think you know, particularly in this adoption field, but in everything, I think it's just, it's important to lay your cards on the table and, you know, even to refer back to my politically incorrect comments. I I, I live in Texas. I'm very conservative, but I feel like as much as I hold very, very different views politically from a, a lot of the people in my life and a lot of the people that I'm close to, most people are okay with it with me because I am more than happy to say, look, this is how I feel. This is why I feel this way. And I'm happy to discuss it. And I'd love to hear how you feel. And I think so long as we don't just make rash decisions and just say, oh, this is bad because it's a Republican view and, and openly communicate and discuss. I think open communication, you always need open communication. Um, Yeah, I disagree with you. Um, I feel like that is your body 
you get to make the decisions for yourself. I don't feel like government has a right to tell you what to do with your body. So I, I that's the first reason I disagree with that. Um, number two, they're pushing it on everybody. But what if you've already had COVID? Why would you need to get the shot? So I disagree on that for the second reason. You might have religious reasons. I, I feel like you have religious autonomy. You shouldn't be told because you believe this way. Nope. No, no, that doesn't matter anymore. You can't do it. There's so many, so many reasons why I disagree with it. And in addition, if you look at the virus data, which is it's a government tracking system that shows um, vaccine um, reactions, negative reactions, there's a lot, like it's over like 800,000. And none of that is talked about by the media. Nobody's discussing that people have side effects to the, the shot. And I don't think you should believe 100% in what the government's telling you because I don't believe it's 100% true because they're, they're not sharing that information. If you were as a parent, um, especially with the children, if you were as a parent more aware that there are vaccine reactions that are negative, you would probably think twice about it. So that's my well, opinion. Yeah, I mean, I had a very bad reaction to the vaccine. Uh, I'll tell you that honestly. I mean, I was in the hospital. But I was sick for a day and I know that it wasn't going to kill me. I knew that it was a reaction and I just think so many lives could be saved. And I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a catch 22, you know, it's probably positive for some people, but there's, it's negative for some people. And, you know, like if your child died from it, you wouldn't be very happy about it. Or if a family member died as a vaccine reaction. I don't believe there have been any deaths at all from vaccine yet. There's been negative reactions and there's been, you know, people who it really shows on, it well. shows on the virus that there is. I think there's over 15,000 deaths and there's, there's other vaccine related injuries like neurological. And, um, there's a lot. And like I said, that's not being shared. So, yeah, well, I mean, there's lots and lots of vaccines that kids aren't allowed to go to school without having those vaccines. Yeah, but then that okay. You know, maybe that's your choice then if you want to not go not go to public school because you didn't get your child vaccinated, then that's another choice for a parent. You know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a choice that that everyone has. But that's um, the thing. I would like that to be a choice, not a mandate by my government telling me that I have to do this. Well, and I think it, it's yeah. I think it's the same thing as any vaccine. I think that I, I don't think that it's a mandate that everyone must be vaccinated. Certainly there are people with health so issues. It never, it never was until this shot. I don't think it's a, a mandate right now. It isn't. It, it is a mandate. It is something that it's said that it's supposed to be, but it isn't by law. It isn't by law, but because they're making it sound like you need to do it and and say, like, if you work for a company that has over 100, you know, telling the companies that their employees have to do this. But yet it isn't even a law. So it's a very it's a very strange time. I, I just know well, it is a strange time. I it feel like it's too time. much control over people. That's my main reason. I just want us to see people stop dying. Yeah, but. The thing, yeah, you just don't even know if like that is true because like I've known lots of people who've gotten COVID and didn't die from it. I know oh, people sure. that have gotten it, but they had a lot of comorbidities and it just in general, as flu comes around, that that is what happens. You know, if you are, you're a very sickly person, you're going to, if you get the flu, that might be the thing that's going to make you pass away. So I kind of, I kind of think we should look at it as like, in general, this is the flu, a flu that comes around, you know, it is just like every other illness in a way. Well, and, and hopefully it'll get to that point. I think that when there are illnesses that are very easily spread, like polio and like, you know, mumps and measles and rubella and, and all the different things that we, we get vaccinated for, or most people get vaccinated for already that are easily spread. There are requirements that if you want to go to public school, you have to, and I think this is just the same. Now, of course, everyone has their own reasons why they may not want to get vaccinated. I think if there's, a, if there's a reason and you feel strongly and you have a strong religious belief, or you have a strong, um, 
health history that's that's that you believe you're going to get really sick from this vaccine, then that's fine. But I do think that there's there's a good there's a good reason to to get one, and and that when they're when when people who aren't vaccinated are going to be putting people who are at a greater risk or people who can't be because of health factors put them at a greater risk, then there should be limitations as to what kinds of things those people are able to do, like going to public school, just the same as you're required to have vaccines, you know, any other vaccine to go to public school. And there are workplaces where you're required to have certain vaccines. Now it's not as much mandated for workplaces, mostly because almost everybody gets those vaccines when they're little. So it, because this is a new disease, it's something that we're getting vaccinated for as adults. And so that's why it's different than all of those other things that there's just an assumption that you've had those vaccines as a child. And then I would touch on the fact that this is a completely different vaccine. It's not really a vaccine. It's an mRNA, which is completely different. And on top of that, it wasn't tested for very long. So you really don't know the long-term effects. In most vaccines, I think in general, it took like 10 years and they studied it. So it's putting your trust in an emergency approved different technology that hasn't even been done before. Well, and the, the Johnson and Johnson shot is not the, is not the same technology. So there is that option that is more like a traditional vaccine. There's also, a, you know, at this point they have, they, they're no longer under emergency use. They, they've been officially approved. Yeah. I don't know. If people do more research, you'll find that there's a lot of information that isn't being shared by the, the mass media or the main media. So I would just say, do your research and, you know, become more knowledgeable on, on it. And yeah, I think everybody should have their own decision, be able to make their own decision on it. So I don't want my government telling me what it can and can't do with my body. I feel like there's like the Nuremberg codes and lots of, co uh, you know, laws and things that are written that say that you have that right. So it's going against those things in addition. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like, and this is just what I was talking about. I like hearing, you know, why people feel the way they do. And I like hearing why you feel like you do about the vaccines. For me, I feel like this is a new virus that that really is scary and can be really dangerous. And I, you know, I was very, very afraid of the virus before the vaccine came out. And I was very, very afraid of getting sick. And I had a, a lot of friends who are doctors who watched all these people die. And when the, when the vaccine first came out, I was a little bit hesitant. I said, yeah, this is awfully quick. But when I saw my friend's who were doctors, who were surgeons, who are the smartest people I know who have been through medical school and understand this. And I saw them getting vaccinated. I felt confident that those things weren't an issue because if they, if, if the doctors and the surgeons and, and Fauci and the president and all these people who have access to all of the information and even any information that is hidden are putting their own bodies and their own children at risk, if there is a risk by getting the vaccines, then I feel comfortable enough to, to do it for myself and my family. Yeah. Yeah. But it, isn't that we're lucky that we live in a country where you can say your opinions and, and uh, think differently and, and to be able to communicate and not be in an argument. I mean, we're handling it well, <laughs> you know, cause we we're coming Absolutely. from completely opposite you know, lines yeah, of thinking. Yeah. yeah, I just, I think it's sad what the whole world has gone through the last two years and I'd like to see it come under control. And, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary. And, I, you know, I, I think it's sad. I have the feeling that we're going to be wearing masks on airplanes for the rest of our lives. And if we are, that's okay. 
Yeah. It's interesting. It was handled differently by some countries, like say Sweden, they didn't do any lockdown and and they're currently, they're currently not having any issues. Um, There's countries where they use ivermectin, like Japan, once they started using ivermectin, they basically have no COVID cases. So there are alternative ways of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And, and one of my most an, annoyances with uh, the media is the fact that they never pushed taking care of yourself, eating healthy, taking vitamins. Like that was never, never, never discussed. Well, they yeah. push washing your hands. You can't say they didn't push That's washing your hands. But I mean, it's like, oh, there's this magical pill that's going to take care of it. And in reality, if people ate well, took care of themselves, you know, there's a lot of other things and supplements that are healthy for you that help you deal with every day your body's dealing with things that can make it sick. Sure. Sure. Of course. Let's see. How will people find out more about you? Absolutely. Well, Journey to My Daughter is, first of all, the name of my website where you can find any information about me and all my contact information. My name is Jennifer Rose Asher, and I use that same name on all social media. So it's Jennifer Rose Asher on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or you can find me through my website, journeytomydaughter.com. And starting in late December, the book will be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any place you buy books. Oh, very exciting. And, and I will be having a a special on the Kindle version when it first comes out for 30 days. So it, it, uh, I'll be offering it for 99 cents just because I really want to get this story into people's hands. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's a fun story to read. I've been told, I've been told by my readers that it's a fun story to read, but it's also, it's just about it's a happy story. It's about having, having faith and, and trust and that everything's going to work out and Mm -hmm. that everything will, will end up how it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think that that's like a good thing to teach people to kind of just trust that things are going to work out or surrender, you know, and well, and also just recognizing kind of recognizing signs when, Mm -hmm. when you're pushing for something really hard and you think this is really what you want and you're working really, really hard at it and obstacles keep getting thrown in your way, pay attention to that. Maybe those obstacles are trying to teach you something Mm -hmm. and being open to seeing that and to looking at things in a different way, not only can it help you end up in the right spot, but it, it can, it can help you teach things and it can make you a happier person. If you see if you go through life and see that every time there's a detour, even in a very literal sense, every time you're driving down the road and there's a detour, that's just an annoyance. And, oh my God, this is ruining my day. And now I'm going to be late and whatever. And you go through life feeling that way. It it leads to a lot of stress. And if you can instead look at and say, oh, there's a detour. You know what? this is nice that I have to go around and go to the street and you know what, there's a Sonic on the way. Maybe I'll stop and pick up a a lemonade, you know, and you can just see that, Oh, maybe this is the universe telling me that I need to stop and pick up, you know, pick up a lemonade today or Mm -hmm. a coffee or, or whatever. And that, that maybe these things are there for a reason that I think you can just go through life as a, as a happier, more positive person. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what we all need to work on is, just staying in the moment and being happy with what we have around us and put, putting out the trust that it's going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing about yourself. Thank you so much. This was a lovely discussion and uh, I really appreciate it.